Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to welcome you this morning. Uh, particularly excited to see some new faces. So if you're a guest, whether it's your first time with us, your first time in a long time, or you're popping in from our North Chatham campus, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, and if you are a guest or if I haven't seen you in a while, uh, I'd love to say hi to you at the end of the service. So I'm going to be under that exit sign in the back. Come say hi. I'd love to hear your name. Uh, what your morning was like, and how you ended up finding us here at Chatham Community Church. And if you haven't gotten a gift on your way in, one of our welcome gifts, want to make sure you get one on the way out, though uh, I, I happen to observe our crack team, our crack welcome team, like chasing people down and making sure they got a welcome gift today. So I'm fairly sure that almost everyone has one. But if you haven't gotten one, make sure uh, you come by, and I'd be glad to give you one. Uh, about four years ago, I sat in a packed movie theater watching a documentary. And that's an accomplishment in and of itself. Because when was the last time you went to the mov a movie theater to see a documentary, and when was the last time it was packed? Uh, but it was packed, and at one point in the movie, it seemed like everyone was crying. It seemed like everyone, you could hear the sniffles, and you could see people sort of dabbing their eyes, and they were happy tears, but uh, everyone was crying. In fact, I was shedding some tears myself. And uh, the documentary we were watching that had provoked this response in us was a documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it tells the story of Fred Rogers and the television he created, a television series he created and hosted, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood aired for over 30 years, and though it was primarily directed at preschool children, the lessons in it were timeless and applicable to people of all ages. And the show always started in a similar way with a, the, a bit of the song that you uh, just heard a little bit of. And Mr. Rogers would enter his home and change his shoes and put on the cardigan. And he would ask his audience, won't you be my neighbor? But the show never stayed in Mr. Rogers' home. Mr. Rogers would venture out into this neighborhood, this expansive neighborhood, and he would go all about meeting people and visiting with them and seeing what they were about, and Mr. Rogers would interact with his neighbors. Uh, sometimes they would come visit him at his house, and sometimes he would go visit them at their houses or at their places of employ where they spent their time. Some of the neighbors looked like him, some of them did not, but they were all neighbors just the same. It seems like embedded in Mr. Rogers' question, won't you be my neighbor, is also an invitation on how to be a neighbor. He was inviting his audience to learn how to be a neighbor, who to be a neighbor to, and how to be the kind of neighbor that builds good relationships. And generations of children learned that watching him. Now, not everyone's aware of this, but Mr. Rogers was actually an ordained minister and sustained his ordination throughout the run of his show. And he was ordained in a ministry to children through television. See, in teaching about neighbors, in teaching about neighboring, he was helping kids learn how to live out the second greatest commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. And given the current social climate in our world, and even locally, perhaps those are some lessons that we need to learn today. Some lessons that we might need to pick up as we go about our lives. So this week we're starting a new series at Chatham Community Church titled, Won't You Be a Neighbor? 
God has gathered us here in Chatham County from all over we may have come, and he's gathered us as a faith community. And we live and study and work and play and do all sorts of things both here in Chatham County and also beyond, either just outside Chatham County or some of us through our jobs or hobbies uh, around the country and sometimes even around the world, which brings us in contact with thousands of people, all sorts of people. So through the passages that we're going to be focusing on in this series, we're going, to, we're going to talk about the difference that it makes in people's lives when they have loving neighbors around them, people that love them well. We'll talk about some of the challenges that are presented when we try to be loving neighbors, how to overcome those challenges, and what are some practical steps we can take here and now in the coming weeks to be good neighbors to the people around us. Now, I just said that based on where we live, where we work, where we study and play and who we interact with, we have the opportunity to be in contact with thousands of people. And that's a lot of people to try to be neighbors to. So where do we start? Where do we begin? Well, we begin by being a neighbor to the people we encounter in our day-to-day. You already come across lots of people in your day-to-day more than likely, and the first step in being a neighbor, is loving the people you encounter in your day-to-day. So if you have access to a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today, and we're going to look at a passage that illustrates what it means to love and be a neighbor to the people you encounter in your day-to-day. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 29. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we're going to put it on the screen in just a second. Luke is one of the four accounts we have of Jesus' life, the others being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're going to read verses 25 through 29, just to start. Here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now the man wants to test Jesus, but his question is not invalid. He may have had ulterior motives, but the conversation that he's initiating is actually a conversation that's worth having. He is essentially asking, what does it take to make the most out of life? What does it take to make the most out of life? He wants to know how to achieve the best possible outcome. Another way of saying it is he's asking, what makes for a life well lived? And don't we all want to know that? Don't we all want to reach the end? Wouldn't we all want to reach the end of our days and be able to look back and confidently say, I lived a good life. I lived my life well. I did the most and the best with the time I had and was given. And we don't lack options for answers to this question for what makes a life well lived or what makes for a life well lived. We can generate them and we receive input from them, uh, of it, from all around us. Some options. Money might make for a life well lived. Success might make for a life well lived. Pleasure might make for a life well lived. Relationships might make for a life well-lived. Power, for some, feels like it makes for a life well-lived. If you're in Chatham County, perhaps three acres and no neighbors. 
makes for a life well lived. For some of us, a big family makes for a life well lived. As you're sitting here, what makes you feel like you're living a good life? In those moments when you have a sense, life is going well, what's going on in your life? What are you focusing on? What are you spending your time with? What are you dedicating yourself to? What makes you feel like you're living a good life, a life worth living? Jesus responds to him by using a common rabbinical teaching method. He turns the question around on the expert on the law. Now, he's not avoiding the question, but he's trying to get a sense from the man of where they're starting in their dialogue. And the man gives a well-informed answer. In fact, what he says is almost word for word what Jesus responds when he gives responses to this question. Almost word for word what Jesus says. And the answer that he gives is not the things that maybe come immediately to mind when we assess what makes for a life well lived. But it is an answer that is both profound and timeless. Jesus basically says or affirms that all of what makes for a life well lived is captured in loving God and loving your neighbors, right? Jesus affirms that that is what makes for a life well lived. He affirms the man's response. Now, there's lots of ways to go about doing that. And some of the things that came to mind when we thought about what our life looks like when it feels like it's going well may connect to that. But I wonder how often we consider how much of our life is tethered to these two statements, to loving God and loving our neighbors. How, how much we think about whether or not we can draw short, straight lines from the things we dedicate ourselves to, to the things that make for a life well lived, to loving God and loving our neighbors. Take a moment and think about your life, the things you spent your time on, your energy on, the things you give your attention to, the things that occupy and take up space in your head and in your heart. How much of those things are tethered to what makes for a life well lived? How much of that? Is it a lot? Is it a little? Are there things that are glaringly obvious that you're missing? Are there things that are glaringly obvious that you need to leave behind? Don't spend another minute of your life giving yourself to things that don't lead to a life well lived that you can't draw short, straight lines to when it comes to loving God and loving our neighbors because God has made us to live a life worth living, to live a life where we feel satisfied with the lot we've been given. So the man answers Jesus' question and Jesus affirms him, and the man should stop right there, but he doesn't. Uh, I, I play board games a lot. In fact, I play board games with Dave a good bit, who is doing our hospitality. Dave, is, uh, they, there's Dave. And uh, recently we were playing a board game, and uh, during the board game you come to this location, right? You move your piece, you come to this location where you can gain a benefit. It's a good benefit. Or you can roll a die. And if you roll a die, you have the opportunity to get better stuff. But there's a face on the die that has nothing on it. And if it lands on that, you get nothing. You get nothing. And Dave and I rolled that die four times in a row and lost. It's a game mechanic known as press your luck. It gives you the opportunity to get something better or risk losing it all. 
right? We could arrive at that place and always gain the benefit. But for four times in a row, we left empty-handed because we chose to press our luck. This man, it feels like he's pressing his luck, right? He's, if, if he ended the conversation here, here's how it would have ended. It would have ended with the expert of the law trying to test Jesus. Jesus turns the test around on him. He passes the test. Jesus affirms him. So Jesus passed the test too. Fantastic. It's a great interaction. He can go away happy. Everything is resolved. He should quit while he's ahead, but he doesn't. He chooses to roll the die to press his luck. And he asks, and who is my neighbor? And it tells us that he's doing it to justify himself. You don't ask that question in order to justify yourself unless you have people in mind that you want excluded from the answer. You don't ask that question unless you have some people in mind you hope to exclude. Because if Jesus' answer somehow excludes them, then you're set then you've got nothing left to do. Then you've arrived. You've got nothing left to improve. So Jesus takes that question, takes the man's roll of the die, and tells a story. And here's what the story says. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and he saw the man but he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, just as a reminder, the question that the man had asked was, who is my neighbor? And you could make a case that in light of how the story unfolds, the answer that Jesus presents to him is a neighbor is anyone you encounter on the path. Anyone you encounter as you go about your day-to-day, that is your neighbor. But Jesus shifts the conversation just slightly and seems to be more interested in answering these questions. Who am I a neighbor to instead of who is my neighbor? And how? Am I a neighbor to them? Or what does it mean to be their neighbor? He wants to keep it personal. He wants to keep it focused on the man, on the expert of the law, the man he's talking to. And then as we read the passage, as we read this passage, the focus is being kept on us about doing the internal work that is required of us rather than a filtering people out based on whether they fit a particular box that we define as who is our neighbor and who isn't. So Jesus tells the story. And his closing invitation in the story is essentially, won't you be a neighbor? Right? Go and do likewise. Won't you be a neighbor? Instead of, and who is my neighbor? It's, won't you be a neighbor? And in the story, he paints what it looks like to be a neighbor by focusing on a man who's on a path, 
a man on the path, a man on his way somewhere, and showing three different responses when, when others encounter him on their path. First, there's the robbers. The first group that encounters the man is the robbers. And when they meet the man on the path, they beat him, they rob him, they attack him, they wound him, they strip him of his clothes, they leave him for dead, they leave him alone, they leave him in need in a desperate situation. They do violence to him. Are they being neighbors to the man? No, of course not. That one's obvious, right? Neighbors don't do violence. Neighbors don't do violence. Now, before we dismiss this one as like, of course, that's obvious. Neighbors don't do violence. That's an easy one. Because I hope that none of us attack, rob, uh, strip, or leave people for dead along the way. Though if you do, we can talk about that too. Um, let's be clear that uh, doing violence is way more than just uh, executing physical harm onto people. Violence goes further than just causing physical harm. By this point, I've lost track of the number of people I've had conversations with that go along a very similar script. It goes something like this. All my life, or during a particular time in my life, ex-important people in my life kept saying this to me. You're an idiot. We didn't want you. You're pointless. You're useless. You're incapable. You're no good. How could you do that? You can't seem to get it right ever. All of their life, this consistent message. And when I talk to them, it's clear that that hasn't only been a source of pain for their whole lives. It's been a limiting factor in their lives. It's been a block. They say things like, because of that, I've had all my life, I've doubted my opinions. Or I've second-guessed my own work, or I've been unwilling to speak up. All of their life, they've been limited by those things said to them. It has been a source of pain. It has been a limiting factor. It has been a block to their lives. Physical harm is not the only way we do violence to each other. Words can do violence as well. With words, we can do violence to each other, and neighbors don't do violence. Words can do violence. Withholding can do violence. We withhold affection. We can withhold resources. We can, there are so many other ways that we can do violence to each other. And here's what I have to say. Our current social climate has blessed violence. It's blessed so much violence. It's blessed violence on the verbal side. It's blessed violence in other situations as well. And friends, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we sometimes engage in it as well. The anonymity of social media and the just, um, uh, uh, just the abundance of words as violence in our society has numbed us to how damaging it can actually be. The way we talk to each other, the way we talk about each other, the way we think about each other, the way we write and post about each other is brutal. Is brutal. We do violence to each other. It is keeping us from a life well lived. It is keeping us from a life well lived and it is doing damage to the fabric of our society. Neighbors don't do violence in any way, shape, or form. 
Consider how you are talking about the people you encounter in your day-to-day. Consider how you talk about the people whose lawn signs you don't agree with. How you talk to them or how you avoid talking to them. We're doing violence to each other, friends, and neighbors don't do violence. So the robbers leave the man. He's been stripped of everything, anything that would indicate who he is, whether he has any status, whether he is a person of social importance. Everything has been taken from him. He could be anyone, and he could be anyone, and he's in need. He needs someone to be a neighbor to him. He desperately needs someone to show him love. And one by one, two religious men come across him. They meet him on their path. They meet him as they're on the way. These are men whose job it is to know how to love God well and how to love their neighbors well. They are the experts at this. And I can't say whether they seem to be good at loving God or not, but they clearly fail at loving their neighbor, which makes me think that they're not very good at loving God either. Now, they can make a religious case for why it was right for them to walk on by. They can make a case that maybe by interacting with the man, they would become unclean and wouldn't be able to perform some of their ceremonial duties. They could rationalize their way out of it. And maybe they did. Maybe they did. But the story makes it clear that they made the wrong choice, that they chose the wrong thing. Are they neighbors? No. They aren't neighbors to this man. Friends, if our way of thinking leads us to ignore the people we encounter day to day, leads us to pass them by day to day, to not see them, especially when they might be in need, whether we know it or not, then our way of thinking must change. Our way of thinking must change because neighbors don't walk on by. Neighbors don't walk on by. You can't be a neighbor if all you do is walk by the people God puts in your path day to day. The passage tells us that they see him, but it doesn't seem to affect them. I'd be willing to wager that they don't really see him, they see through him. They see through him. How many people do we see through? How many people do we see through? The expert in the law and the audience at this point in the story would be seeing themselves as either the man who is in need or perhaps as the Levite and the priest. And they're upset that the Levite and the priest maybe have not made the right choice. And they're hoping, they're hoping that the next one that comes along makes the right choice, right? They would expect it to be another Jew, maybe the high priest. The high priest, he definitely is going to get it right. He's going to make the right choice. But that's not who enters the picture next. The next one who enters the picture is a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans have a history of conflict with Jews. They have a history of strife with Jews. They don't worship together. This is a marginalized community. The Samaritan would have had every reason to walk on by, every reason to ignore. You wouldn't expect anything more from a Samaritan if you're a Jew listening to this story. Jesus stacks the deck here of all the reasons why the Samaritan shouldn't stop. He stacks the deck to make it clear what it means to be a neighbor. Because the Samaritan ends up being the neighbor. And the first thing he does 
is he sees him. He sees the man on the path. He sees him. Now, the religious men had as well, but what comes right after where it says that he saw him is what makes the difference. See, it says that he saw him and he had pity on him. Now, that word pity uh, uh, is, would be better translated as compassion. In fact, in other instances where it's used for Jesus, compassion is used. And what the word connotes is this sense that you not only see need, but you let it move you. Right? It says it moves you in your bowels, right? Because that's where they believed was the seat of all emotion and all impulse. So it affects you. He sees the man and it affects him. He feels in such a way that he can't help but respond. He sees him, not sees through him. There's a, um, a series of books that I've read a couple of times called The Dark Tower, written by Stephen King. And uh, one of the heroes in the uh, series is a man named Roland who comes from another world and their language or their way of speaking English is a little bit different. And he has a particular phrase that he uses when talking to people, when interacting with them in specific settings. He says, do you see me? Do you see me very well? Do you see me for who I am? When Roland asks those questions and when he tells people, I see you, I see you very well. What he's saying is, I see who you are. I see what you need. I see what you are capable of. I see what you can do. I see you. I see you. I recognize you. I acknowledge you. I connect with my heart with you. The Samaritan sees the man on the path, not just with his eyes. He sees him with his heart. He sees him not just with the eyes on his, in his head. He sees him with the eyes in his heart. He opens himself up to the man on the path. Neighbors see those they encounter on the path. They open not just their eyes, their physical eyes, but the eyes of their heart to them. When you go about your day-to-day, -day, when I go about my day-to-day, -day, when we go about our day-to-day, -day, where are our eyes focused the most? Where do we spend the most time directing our glance to? Let me tell you, that little device we carry around captures too much of my attention. My eyes spend too much time focused on that. I can't say that I haven't missed people because I've had my eyes focused on that. And if I have the eyes in my head focused on that, the eyes of my heart certainly aren't focused on the people that God puts in my path day to day. What about you? Who are we missing? Who are we missing? Who are we failing to see? Now, once the Samaritan sees the man on the path, then he draws near. He comes to him. He meets the man where he's at. Neighbors meet those that they encounter on the path. They come near to them. They have an interaction with them. You know, when I first moved here to North Carolina, for the longest time, I was guilty of waving at my neighbors and nothing more. Now, my neighborhood is a small neighborhood, but it's a well-trafficked neighborhood. People walk on by all the time. In fact, it's connected to another neighborhood and people from that neighborhood use my neighborhood as a, as a shortcut. So there are people walking by all the time and for the first few months, maybe for the first six months, there were, I was like, guy who walks his dog, people who walk in the afternoon, family whose kid rides a trike, couple that talks in the evenings, that's all I knew about the people around me and I would frequent places and there would be like, 
the woman who brings me my breakfast at Burley's, the lady with the great laugh at, at Phoenix Bakery. For a long time, I was guilty of waving but not knowing, of seeing but not meeting, of not connecting. So I changed. And in fact, I didn't change because of me. I changed because Roland stopped one day. Funny, same name as the guy in the Dark Tower novels. But Roland with the Chihuahua stopped and struck up a conversation with me. And after he did that, something in my heart changed for him. Because now I had met him. Now I connected him. Now I cared a little bit more. And so I started to do that. And so the lady that brought me my breakfast became, um, uh, <laughs> became Aquilina. And she and I stop and speak Spanish and chat about life and chat about what she's doing every time I'm in Verley's. The woman with the great laugh at Phoenix Bakery became Virginia, who has a daughter who's learning Spanish at the Immersion School and who actually lived and worked in Vieques, Puerto Rico, which is the island where I'm from. And we talked about what it's like to live in Puerto Rico and whether or not she wants to go back there. Things change when you move from waving to meeting when you connect with people, when you meet them where they are. So the Samaritan draws near, and he sees as he draws near, right? In giving himself the opportunity to meet the man, he sees that there are needs that the man has that he can meet. He knows how to bandage wounds. He has a donkey and can, and can transport him to where he can get more care. See, between the need that the man has and the resources that the Samaritan has, there is a connection. And neighbors connect with those they encounter on the path. Sometimes, like in this situation, is that there's a need and an ability to meet that need. Sometimes the connection comes because of shared interest, right? Some of the classic ones are, where are we going to watch the Super Bowl? Which neighbor's having the Super Bowl party? That's a connection. The classic one that you see in old TV is, who can I borrow a cup of sugar from? All those things lead to connections. Sometime in our, in our offices is who you know that keeps their office supplies well stocked. Because that's where you go to grab the stapler. Actually, when I was in school, it was who had the steady supply of mechanical pencils. I don't know if you remember, but there used to be there's mechanical pencils. Some of you are, are, caught in, are caught either in the generation before it happened or after it happened. There were these mechanical pencils that had like these, these white leads, right? They were like, like cartridges, and you had to push a new car the old cartridge through to get the new one. I always managed to lose one of those cartridges, and then I was sunk. The, the pencil was worthless for me. But I always knew who had, who I could borrow from, right? There was a connection. These were the people I built relationships. These were my neighbors. Who can you connect with? Now, I want to pause right here and say something that should be obvious, but I want to state it just in case. Um, it seems like I'm, I'm saying lots of things that, that, that are required for being neighbors, and you're like, I can't do that for the thousands of people that I interact with. You're right. You're right. We can't do all of this with everyone. But if we start with seeing, then the Lord will show us who we need to meet. And if we meet, then the Lord will open doors for who we can connect to. We have limited resources, limited time, but perhaps there are people that you be, you're being invited to see, and then after that, to meet, and then after that, to connect. The Samaritan has connected with the man. He's met his need. The man is no longer abandoned by the side of the road. He is being cared for, and the next day comes, and the man is still in need, and the Samaritan needs to leave. So the Samaritan makes sure that the man is cared for as he's recovering. 
See, now the Samaritan, who has met this stranger on the path a day before, has become invested in the long-term good of the man he encountered on the road. But he doesn't need to be there for every moment or every step of the way. Neighbors participate in the long-term good of those they encounter on the path. They're in it for the long haul, but that doesn't mean they're responsible for every step of the way. That doesn't mean that they're responsible for every stage of the development. This is where boundaries are important. This is where it's important to know what we can say yes to and what we can't say yes to. Because if we don't get this one right, the participating in the long-term good without feeling like we need to be responsible for every step, two things happen. We either never have deep relationships or we have deep relationships that crash and burn and then we have no relationship. Learning what it means to participate without having to be responsible for every step is key to being a good neighbor. Ultimately, all of this is summarized in neighbors loving those they encounter on the path. The applications are different. It looks different for each of us, but it's summarized in this, loving those we encounter on the path. During the pandemic, with many of my social outlets limited because of restrictions on gathering, with people being cautious, appropriately so, I was starting to look for other avenues to engage, to build relationships, to connect with people. And I started to play a game through an app on my phone. And I started to play this game. I'd never played it before, but I had time on my hands. And I was like, let's play it. And this game has some communal aspects to it, so I joined like a group within the game and so we could accomplish things. And that group was like, hey, we, we coordinate together on this other platform. And it's like a message board. For those of you who are familiar with tech, I'm talking about Discord. For those of you unfamiliar with tech, don't worry about it. Uh, just think about it as a message board where people can talk to each other. They were like, join that message board. And so I joined that message board and it was going well and I was, you know, just sort of interacting with those people casually. And then one of the people in the group messaged me and said, hey, I see you're new here. You know, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. And so I told her a little bit about myself and she was like, you know, you sound like someone that would get along with this smaller group of people that I have in a separate sort of message board. And we talk and we, you know, chat. We're about the same age and whatnot. Why don't you join that? And I was like, sure, okay, why not? And that's how I met Kevin and Brooke and Chrissy and Derek, who over the last two years have become close friends. At first, we didn't know each other's names. We used, used handles. Handles are like nicknames that we all had for each other, right? But by this point, we all know each other's names. In the two years we've known each other, we've laughed, we've cried. Most of them don't play the game anymore, but we talk almost every week. I even had the opportunity to meet Derek in person when I was driving through Pennsylvania. They know I'm a minister, and they are free to be themselves. In fact, one of them cusses like a sailor, man. Makes me blush how many words they can string together sometimes and make coherent sentences. But at the same time, when there have been times when they've been in need, I've had the opportunity to pray with them. When I've been going through stuff, they've been encouraging, they've given me advice, they've comforted, they've made me laugh on days when I was sad. They are dear friends. They saw, they met, we connected, we've participated. We love each other. We love each other. All because one of them saw me on the path and decided to be a neighbor. She encountered me on the path 
and they decided to be a neighbor. For the next few weeks, I want to invite you to participate in something simple but profound, something that is essential to living a life well-lived, a life worth living. I want you to love the people you encounter in your day-to-day, whatever that might look like. I want you to love the people you encounter in your day-to-day. On the line, in the drop-off, people you talk to, volunteering at school, in your classes, at work with your clients, the people you chat with over Slack or whatever other platform you use at your job, the people who you see while you're walking around. I want to invite you to love the people you encounter day to day. I want to invite you to be a loving neighbor. Just pick one of these for the next week to try. Try seeing people. Maybe meet one new person. Maybe find a place to connect. Perhaps it's time to participate in someone's long-term well-being, long-term good, long-term relationship. I'm going to invite the worship team to join me, and I want to create simply a moment of silence for you to look at those words and pick one. I don't want you to leave here this week without picking one. Pick one. You may be like, well, I'm not sure that that's the right one. It's okay. If it's not the right one, God will change it over the course of the week. But pick one. Worship team, would you join me? And then I'll pray for us. Take a moment and pick one. Gracious God, you have made us to live a life worth living. You have made us to be loving neighbors. All of what life well lived is, is captured in loving you and loving our neighbors. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us words to know how to meet. Give us the impulse to connect, to find the place of contact and overlap. And Lord, draw us to participate. Lord, our world needs loving neighbors. We need loving neighbors. Would we be loving neighbors? In Jesus' name, amen.